The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, This is Eileen Fiore sitting in for Mary Woods. And um, we have a... Um, wonderful guest today, uh, Dr. Margaret Rutherford, who is a psychologist and has been in clinical practice for over 20 years. Um, she's in the uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas area, um, but also has an incredibly interesting website where she um, blogs on a number of different topics. Um, the one that we thought we might focus in a little bit on today is a topic that um, I know was I found extremely interesting, which is exploring something that um, Dr. Rutherford refers to as perfectly hidden depression. Um, so, Dr. Rutherford, thank you for being a part of our show. Welcome. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted. I'm, and by the way, Fable, Arkansas is home of the Arkansas Razorbacks, so we won our game <laughs> last Saturday. Oh, so. Well, there you go. Even better. (laughs) (laughs) We'll try to do just as well as um, the Arkansas team. (laughs) Sounds great. So, I wonder if you could um, help me and our listeners um, uh, to understand the concept behind perfectly hidden depression. Sure, I'd be more than happy to. I uh, I based Perfectly Hidden Depression, my first post on it, uh, on a young woman I was seeing who was who had actually come into therapy for an eating disorder, and then about six or eight sessions in, she said, you know, I... I maybe I should tell you something, and with this bright smile on her face said, I was raped um, the, the, the week before I went to college, and I've never really told anyone. Someone put a drug in my drink, and I don't remember it, and you know, I've never really thought it was important, but you did ask me about sexual trauma, and I answered no, so I thought I would tell you. And Eileen, the interesting thing was, again, she had this wide smile. She could have been telling me what she'd had for dinner the night before. So I was mm-hmm. writing about, I was thinking of something to write for my, for my blog and thought, I'm going to kind of write about her. And I wrote this post called, the perfectly, didn't depress, the perfectly Hidden Depressed Person, Are You One? Well, I didn't know what happened. My blog post at that point, I mean, it was fairly popular. It was okay. You know, I'd get 50 or 100 likes or something like this. Within 24 hours after posting, I had uh, 1,500 shares and likes on that post. And I thought, ah, oh, I've discovered something. 
Um, when I put it on the Huffington yeah. Post, I, which was actually my first article on the Huffington Post, the exact same thing happened. Uh, what I didn't quite realize was that I had left my email address on the Huffington Post, and I got 150 emails um, just in one day again saying, this is me, I can't believe someone's figured it out. Basically what it is, it is, it's depression, but it's depression that's either unintentionally or very intentionally hidden. It's people who have incredible amounts of energy and activity in their lives. They don't look classically depressed. They are very energetic, very active in their communities. They are hard workers. They're usually very successful professionally or in the home. But underneath all that, underneath all that is loneliness and despair and depression that they tell no one about. Their friends, they have lots of friends, but their friends don't know them well. They don't really know what some of the inner turmoil they have is. It's the person, Eileen, that you hear kill themselves. And you just saw them in the grocery store two weeks ago, and they looked great. They didn't look depressed. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a problem that we in psychology really need to assess because, for one thing, the suicide rate is going up dramatically, and two, these people are just slipping, they're slipping through our fingers. They, I've been, in my interviews, I've been told with people like this, I've been told that they'll go into therapy, but they are just told that they need to slow down or they're a little on the anxious side. Therapists mm. are missing their depression. So, it- that is um, an incredible statement for those of us who are clinicians. And how do we pull ourselves out of this sort of traditional view of waiting for sadness or tears or low mood or flatter affect and really see this um, energetic individual as having um, an underlying issue? Well, I, I think it's, it, it's going to take several things. First of all, a recognition that this, what I'm calling a syndrome, it's not a diagnosis, it's a syndrome or a group of behaviors mm-hmm. that are often found together. I think if we, as a, as a profession, begin to realize that there's a whole other presentation of depression that that we need to look for it. it so it's about um, it's about some clarity on our part or some some recognition that again our traditional view. Yes, it's often extremely accurate, but often it is not. The other thing is, and what I have found, um, I don't know how interesting this would be for the general public, but for therapists who might be listening. I find that when I have someone like this sitting on my couch and they're telling me their story, I have to be very careful to listen to what they're saying, not how they're saying it. Because if I, mm-hmm. if I get sort of entranced with how they're saying it, they, I will miss the import of what they are saying. For example, a woman said to me one time as a child that it was just a known thing that there was going to be uh, beer in the fridge, but no food. But she said it was sort of this lilting voice and kind of with a little joke. 
And I looked at her and I said, you know, what was that really like? And and you have to kind of dig for the emotion. They're not going to give it up readily. Um, and but in that that particular person looked at me like, well, what? What's what's the matter? What are you reacting to? So we have to listen to what is being said, not how it's being said. Interesting. Very interesting. So even um, the, your um, first individual um, had what most of us would be able to immediately, immediately acknowledge was a very traumatic, even though her memory may be fuzzy on it, a rape. Some of these others are um, sort of lifestyle issues in growing up that wouldn't necessarily find its way into a dialogue about what that was like as a child with a That's right. I've done a, I've done a questionnaire that I have validated on about three dozen people who, and you can find that questionnaire on my website, by the way, drmargaretrutherford.com. Um, this questionnaire has 25 questions, and the people that I've been interviewing, I've asked them to take it, and then we discuss their answers. And the one thing, many of the, many of the things on the questionnaire are, correlate well with the syndrome. But the one that is most remarkable to me is the one, it's a question about, um, did you have a family that allowed you to express painful emotions, or were you punished if you did, or, or were, you, were you told that that was a bad thing? Almost to the, to, the, to the top, I mean, almost everybody said that, yes, they had grown up in those kinds of families. And that's where they learn frequently, that's where they learn that they're supposed to deny any kind of anger or fear or grief or guilt. Now, shame is okay, <laughs> Shame seems to be something you can feel quite readily. But these other things, these other more vulnerable emotions, are simply, were not simply, they were not allowed, and so people began, these children began developing strategies of how to control their emotions very, very rigidly and compartmentalize all these bad things that have happened to them. Very interesting. And so there may also, if I'm understanding, um, that there'll be other family members that also reinforce this type of communication and sort of style of coping. So it wouldn't necessarily be challenged readily. Yes, you betcha. And in fact, uh, some of the people that I've worked with, um, not only their family of origins were very much like this and would oppose any kind of real or honest um, expression of self, but they've chosen partners who also are uncomfortable with it. Um, they, they, they might be the savior in the relationship, or they might be, um, they've chosen people who are also very, not superficial, these are often very nice, wonderful people, very giving in the community and all that kind of thing, but they don't talk about darker, more painful things. It's just, it's avoided. And it's unexpressed because it's also unfelt? Is that fair? I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand the question. 
Um, so, uh, say for example, if um, I grew up in a family where we didn't talk about things and denied emotion, then am I going through my experiences as um, a young adult or more mature adult with just um, dealing with, but you mentioned as if it wasn't happening, um, but at the same time, you yes. do mention loneliness and despair. So and how do we whole, connect there's that? There's just a... a, a lot of denial. In fact, people will say to me, but I'm not depressed. You don't understand I'm not depressed. They don't want to be depressed. They don't want to look, they, they are, uh, the, the stigma of mental illness and depression is very important here. It's hard enough for pers- anyone who doesn't um, express PhD or perfectly hidden depression. It's hard enough in our culture for anyone to come forward who has more classic depression, dysthymia or major depression, who is lost in that. So um, we're uh, going to prepare for a break right now. So um, for our listeners, we'll be back in just a few minutes, and we're going to explore a little bit further um, this whole concept of perfectly hidden depression. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. I'm Eileen Fiore, sitting in for Mary Woods, and today we're having a conversation with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, who has introduced a very interesting topic um, that relates, I think, to probably many of us as clinicians and um, perhaps other uh, listeners with family members or themselves, that's a concept um, called the perfectly hidden depression. So, um, Welcome back, and I'm wondering, Dr. Rutherford, if we could start with um, some very practical, perhaps, description of what you um, uh, what you observe as a clinician when uh, folks are sitting with you and experiencing um, this uh, syndrome. Sure, sure. I actually have a list of 10, and I think they're fairly self-explanatory, but um, I, so I don't want to overwhelm the listener with a bunch of details. The first one is perfectionism with a constant critical inner voice. This is huge, and of course, Brene Brown has done a wonderful job of talking about um, being comfortable with being imperfect, so um, this is similar to her work, except she does not... To my knowledge, she does not combine it with the with the di- with the dynamic of being depressed. Number two is a heightened or excessive sense of responsibility. If these people are going to be involved in something, they want to be responsible for it. There's she's the woman who will say, "Well, if my son's going to play on the soccer team, then I I better coach, or I'm going to provide all the snacks because I want him to have the best experience." That kind of thing. Number three is difficulty with accepting and expressing painful emotions. This is huge. Again, as we were talking in the last segment, there's a real denial of painful emotion and and there's a fear about expressing them. Like if they, this is the person who sits on your couch and says, if I told you how sad I was, I would never quit crying. Now, other people might say that too, but it is an aspect of perfectly hidden depression. Number four is a is worry or a need for control over self and environment. This is not a generalized anxiety disorder. It's not that kind of worry that's hypervigilant and highly aroused. Um, this is the need a need for it, the worry is about believing that the worry will control things, and there's a high need for control. Um, if Again, if she's, she or he's going to be involved, they want to be at the helm. Uh, number five is intense focus on tasks, using accomplishment as a way to feel valuable. These folks are doers. They take on... If they're going to take on a new hobby or a new activity of some kind, they don't let another one go. They just add it onto their plate. And there's, that's the way they feel good about themselves is they've got all these things up in the air that they are trying to achieve. Number six is a very active and actually very sincere concern about the well-being of others. However, they don't allow anyone into their own in, inner world. This is a person who has lots of friends, who is highly involved in church or community, and, and people say, ah, oh, I just love him or her. And then you'll say, well, what are they like? And, oh, they're just always really nice and really friendly. Well, what do they struggle with? Oh, 
I don't know. It doesn't seem like they struggle with anything. So there's there's a very there's a, a an engagement with others on a like I say a very sincere level, but they keep very hidden themselves. Number seven is trouble with acknowledging hurt or abuse from the past or the present, discounts or dismisses those hurts. Uh, as I said in the first segment, again, this is the person who thought being raped the week before school and never telling anyone because she didn't remember it is discounting that. This also can happen with current abuse. Number eight, accompanying mental, accompanying mental health issues involving control or escape from anxiety. These folks are going to have eating disorders. They probably, or they may likely have a substance abuse disorder. Again, they're not raging alcoholics, but they've got to have their couple of drinks at night out in the garage. Uh, they, they may, uh, again, come in with anxiety, fatigue, um, intimacy problems, something like that. But they're not going to necessarily come in and tell you they're depressed. Number nine is a strong belief in counting your blessings as the foundation of well-being. I've had, I don't know how many people come in and sit on my couch and say, you know, I don't really know why I'm here. I have the best life. I've got so many blessings, and I actually, I don't even know what to say. I, 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 maybe I should leave. That, well, maybe that's a little dramatic, but they will, from the get-go, start discounting the reason why they are there and in believing that they're counting their blessings. It's especially difficult, I think, with people who are very religious because they believe that their spirituality really should pull them through. And that's a sort of a subset of what can happen. Then the very last one is that intimate relationships can be difficult but are accompanied by professional success. Because these people are highly driven, they are going to be very successful professionally, typically, but their intimate relationships may stay on a fairly superficial level. Um, it, it, that depends on the severity of the perfectly hidden depression, uh, but in these interviews, for example, I would say about a third of the people have not sought treatment. They've not told their partner how they feel. They're not told their partner they're talking to me. They're out in the garage whispering or out in their backyard or something. So these people do not do particularly well in intimate relationships. This is um, certainly um, fascinating, Dr. Rutherford, because, of course, I can't imagine the amount of admiration that a lot of the folks you describe experience. So I'm wondering how... How does a person then give themselves permission to acknowledge any of this with such strong denial and sort of social reinforcement for who they are and how they cope? Sure. It's funny you ask that because I, I have asked every, again, there have been about three dozen interviews I've done over the phone, and I've asked every interviewee, why did you contact me, and why would you buy... I'm actually writing a book on this. Why would you buy a book on perfectly hidden depression? The answer mostly to the first question is, one, because you asked for help. <laughs> you asked for volunteers, and so these are people who are very task-oriented, so they wanted to be helpful. But two, most people have said, 
I know at my core there's something wrong. And when I read your words, I realized what it was, and I'm, I'm so eager to do something about it. I think once the recognition is there that, that someone, someone is writing about you perfect, perfect, not just hiding, perfectly hiding, right. that there is a sense of someone's got it. They know what I'm doing, and, I, you're, and the loneliness that goes along with perfectly hidden depression is helped by that because maybe there are other people like me who are doing the same thing, and maybe I can stop. Maybe uh, I don't have to invest so much. I just don't know how, but you know, maybe I could read a book or an article or something that would help me stop this incredibly fatiguing uh, journey that I'm on here. Which certainly brings me to my next um, question in the course of addressing this as clinicians. What do we have to be careful of? You had mentioned suicide earlier. Um, what what uh, kind of pace and set of interventions for clinicians would be most useful here? Well, that's a really good question. I... Um, I think that you'd have to be careful. Certainly, I'm trying to think of the people that come to mind that I've treated directly. I think I've had to be very careful. This this structure that they have built around them that's very intentional or, as I said before, perhaps unconscious that they don't even realize they're doing it, um, it, it, it's... It's well defended as well, and if you go for the jugular and try to, as a therapist, and try to get these people to emote too much too soon, they're going to run. Mm-hmm. If indeed you say, you know, if you, if you appeal more to helping them make some connections with with what they might, oh, I know what I'm saying, what they might say to someone else. Gosh, you know, if if someone else was sitting right beside you and they told you that as a child they went to the refrigerator and all they found was beer, what would you say to them? And they'd say, oh, I was telling them that's horrible. Well, then mm-hmm. why are you normalizing it for you? It's getting them to think through what their, their messages they're saying to themselves and what they are saying that is their belief systems about um, what they believe is selfish, for example. Um, a lot of people will say, if I start putting myself first, that's a very selfish thing to do. I can't do that. Um, or they will say that crying is attention-seeking. I can't cry because people will will think I'm calling attention to myself. It's those distorted, irrational beliefs that one by one, if you begin helping the person understand that, that they can then realize how much they've got pushed aside, how much they've got compartmentalized. Then you have to be careful that you don't try to take all of it down too soon. Um, like the, 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 the memories or the trauma or the family situation or whatever it is that's in that closet, you have to be very careful that you take it down one box at a time and see what's there. Interesting. So safety is a huge component of the treatment. 
that you're providing and really they believe they're keeping themselves safe with all this structure. Yes, exactly. And how careful as clinicians we have to be to um, really listen and um, and listen with our own empathy without trying to rush anyone. Right. Right. That's right. Wonderful. Now, is it um, likely that much of this would then get addressed as you work with some of the other attending issues? You mentioned an eating disorder or substance use disorder, um, that people are coming in with a different... Um, a different uh, presenting issue, but that this is an awareness for the clinician to always keep in mind as we go through these conversations. Yes, I would say that. You're, you're looking for what the person is struggling with that the substance abuse disorder or the eating disorder is reflective of, but there's more there. There's a lot more there. Right. And is it also fair to say, I don't know what role medication would play in this process, or is that not a conversation you generally rush to based on um, the hidden nature of this? Well, remember, these folks don't even particularly want to say they're depressed, to say they need medication. <laughs> uh, they're, they're frequently not going to like that. Um, so although if they believe the medication will help them hide more, they may jump on board, but that's not the point. <laughs> right, right. So um, that is... Uh, that's almost an area to avoid, at least at the beginning, if I understand um, the, the approach that you're taking. Yes, I think that's an interesting point, Eileen, and, and one I haven't really thought about too much about how to approach talking about medication, but I, I do think these people will be a little bit, um, they'll be a little bit frightened or um, just jittery about talking about medication, especially too soon in the process. Well, that's really good for um, everyone in our field to take to heart. Um, we're um, about ready for a break right now, so we'll be back with Dr. Rutherford in just a moment. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We are bombarded with information daily about happy life strategies, beauty products, and business success ideas. Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. Shelly will explore and recommend proven business ideas as well as show you how to use the law of attraction to create health, happiness, and a prosperous business. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Um, this is Eileen Fiore sitting in for Mary Woods, and um, I'm talking today with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, who is um, presenting some very eye-opening concepts to us around perfectly hidden depression. Um, and I might understand, Dr. Rutherford, that you were writing a book. Uh, I am. I have a book proposal. Uh, I have an agent and a book proposal, and it's being shopped around New York right now. And I've had some interest, um, so I'm really excited about that. I, it has not been bought yet. I wish I could. I wish I could say that, but I'm 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 very hopeful that it's it's going to be bought. And if it's not bought, I will self-publish and put this information out there. I got tickled when I heard your uh, call-in request. No one is going to call in that perfectly in depression. I've had people write and say, I can't even like your post because I'm on perfectly in depression because I'm scared somebody will see it. So they yeah. privately emailed me, but it's been pretty funny. Well, and if that is one of the outcomes, we'll all be happy because it seems as though... Um, there are a lot of folks that we would see as heroes, superstars, um, real achievers that are experiencing this um, under the surface and are, for a whole host of reasons, I imagine, having difficulty even revealing, obviously, to themselves, but then standing in that truth once the revelation occurs. Um, can you speak to a little bit about that um, in the folks that you have worked with who were able to move into a more honest sense of self? Sure. I, uh, the, the woman I mentioned before who presented with a binge eating disorder, she and I worked together for several months, and 
she had actually broken off a relationship with a man that she felt like she cared about, but he, he, she wanted to go places with her life, and she found him a little boring, she said, and so she broke off the relationship. During our treatment, she got back together with him and started dating him again, and I'll never forget the session she came in. She said, well, it's like I'm dating someone else, and I said, what do you mean? And she said, if I'm truthful... It's not him that's different, it's me that's different, because I'm actually talking to him about my eating disorder. I'm talking to him about my insecurities. I'm talking to him about some of the childhood memories I have that are very painful. And I never shared anything like that. So it's far from boring. In fact, it was when last I saw her, the relationship was going very well. Um, the other people that I've talked with via the interviews... I would say maybe a third to a half of them were in therapy for just this problem. They recognized, and their therapists recognized, thank goodness, that there was a, an inner core that was very dark and um, desolate. And, the, and some of them had actually either tried to commit suicide or were thinking about committing suicide. And so they got themselves into therapy. Um, you know, I, I w- that's why I'm doing this. I don't want people to have to get to that point before they realize that right. maybe some of the things they were taught or they absorbed in their childhood does not fit the way the world has to be now. And they can yeah. be more of more complete. They can feel more complete and really engaged and connected. Of course, Eileen, what they have to do first is to risk revealing. And risk not looking perfect, risk not looking in control, that is very, very difficult for some people. And I have them do silly little things at first, like wear one earring or unmatching socks or things that are really very um, easy uh, to to pull off. Or they may think of something better, you know, they, I don't know, they don't wear makeup one day or, I don't know, whatever, so that they can just dabble in imperfection. I ask them to do one mediocre thing that week, to set out to do it in a mediocre fashion, make a mediocre meal, um, write a mediocre email, I mean, whatever, to, to give themselves, to allow themselves to experience whatever anxiety that may cause them. Um, because these people just shy so away from not looking their best all the time. Yeah, what a burden um, that folks would be experiencing to have to, and and actually a very fun way um, and very non-threatening to tease out the ability to uh, be something less than perfect. Well, I think you have to take baby steps before you take huge ones and before you admit to a therapist or a best friend or your spouse or whomever that you're not exactly who you try to put out, portray yourself to be, that um, it takes a, a little waiting around in the shallow end before you can, you can go into deeper waters. Absolutely, which of course, um, I guess, uh, kind of leads us into um, 
as you've suggested um, with this young woman, um, a relationship issue. I, I noticed on your website, which is rich with information with your blogging, that um, you you have work with couples and with empty nests. Um, with everyday coping with divorce. Um, I found one um, entry on healthy dependence, um, very interesting, healthy maturity. Can you speak to um, how this is manifesting and all these other things frequently bring folks into therapy? Sure. Well, I when... When I've had someone with perfectly hidden depression come into couples, I actually think it's a little harder for them because whatever the conflict is in the marriage, if they're staying very hidden, then they're probably not going to feel safe in exposing themselves to their spouse. So frequently I might consider either sending them to someone else for individual therapy or seeing if I can crack that shell in, in, in an individual session and just ask them, how do you think you, you resisting or being very um, closed off emotionally to your spouse is affecting the relationship and how did you get this way? And Because, I, you know, that vulnerability may not be, it may not be comfortable for them in, in a couple session. Now, what I said before I think is also true, that they may have self-selected someone who actually needs for them to be or counts on them being up all the time and very task-oriented, and perhaps it's someone who has a, a, a job and they have three or four kids, and if if the person with perfectly hidden depression doesn't keep up their side of things, then they might have to jump in and do more of the domestic work. So sometimes there is a there's a real investment in the person staying hidden. Um, and in fact, some of the people I've interviewed have said that it's kind of slow going with their spouse. Um, they didn't marry someone who would be more vulnerable emotionally, and uh, and so there is some. There's some difficulty there. Um, and that has to really challenge both members of the marriage or relationship to embrace change in a very different kind of way. Um, yeah, I mean... With I, strong impact. Mm-hmm. Again, is is the contract one between them that they're going to stay at a certain level of of understanding one another and really not be too interested in anything deeper than that, or is the other partner saying I've I've always wanted him or her to open up to me and they just seem unable to do it? Now this is not Asperger's and this is not you know there are a lot of things that it's not um, that have to be ruled out, but. This is more, again, it's a set of behaviors that may look like work, workaholic people. It may look like, I have one guy that comes to mind that literally was practically the therapist for his whole corporation. I mean, he, wow. he was uh, constantly... Should, 
helping people in his business and his wife is getting um, description after a brief break. Oh, sure. Great. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune into Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to all of our listeners. Um, Today we've been having a very interesting conversation with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, um, who's introduced us to a concept called perfectly hidden depression. Um, And Dr. Rutherford, we have covered so much ground in just these minutes that... um, I, I know I would struggle to try to summarize everything, so I'm wondering if you can kind of help me out in providing our listeners with a summary of um, our conversation today and perhaps the best way to connect with you for those folks who may be experiencing an awakening as we speak. Sure, I'd be more than happy to, Eileen. Thanks. The first thing to remember is you're not going to walk into a medical doctor's office and say, I've been di- I think I have perfectly hidden depression. I need to be treated for that. They wouldn't know what in the world you were talking about. It's a term that I've, that I've created to describe a syndrome of behaviors or a group of behaviors that tend to fall together in someone's life. 
They, those include perfectionism and need for control and trouble with painful, uh, with trouble with expressing painful emotions, believing you should count your blessings, those kinds of things. Um, and I did list ten of those. But it's also very, very different from classic depression. In classic depression, you, you almost always have what's called anhedonia or a lack of interest in previously pleasurable activities. You don't find that in perfectly hidden depression. This is not the person who's sitting on the floor of the bathroom not being able to walk the dog like we see on television. This is someone who's really quite vital in the community, vital in his or her family, very uh, functioning well on a professional level, well-liked by others, but it's also the person who might just become suicidal underneath all that without ever telling anyone. That's why it's so vital to try to get some information out to both the public and mental health professionals so that the public can identify what's wrong and mental health professionals can begin to treat more effectively. I love this quote by Andrew Solomon, who's the author of The Noonday Demon, which is a wonderful, quite a tome on depression, but it's a, a book about classic depression. He says, The opposite of depression is not happiness, but vitality. And for me, if classic depression is this lack of vitality, perfectly hidden depression is a lack of self-acceptance. So if the person with, with perfectly hidden depression can begin to understand that and accept that they have something in their very core that they know is wrong, that, doesn't, that makes them lonely, that in their, in their quieter moments... Um, they feel some despair or some disconnection from other people. There is something you can do about that. And I have some steps on, certainly on treating perfectly hidden depression that we've talked about, confronting denial, risking revealing, confronting your belief system, uh, stop or, or change the way you push away painful emotion. There are all kinds of steps. And I'm hoping there will be a book on it out there in the next year or so. I'm certainly going to try to do that. If you, as a reader, as a reader, as a listener, would like to contact me, my website is drmargaretrutherford.com. That's R-U-T-H-E-R-F-O-R-D.com. Or feel free to privately email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. That's AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. I'm the only one who reads my emails, and I promise you I'll get back with you. Very, very helpful, Dr. Rutherford. Um, And I guess part of what comes to my mind is in doing this work, how do you sustain your vitality um, and, and... uh, are able to to maintain your blog and to keep all your balls in the air. Well, I haven't done much laundry in the last two or three years. I've got my husband to thank for that. <laughs> but I I really I'm I find that as a therapist, if I'm just myself all the time, and I don't put on some air of knowing or expertise or. Uh, that I stay curious and really want to learn from my patients. Every patient I know has some wisdom I don't have, and I'm eager to learn it. 
So I have tried to do that with my patients. I use a lot of humor with my patients, and I do still love what I do. I'm, I've been doing it since I saw my first patient in 1988 in graduate school, and I've been going strong since. So I would really, um, you, you don't have to know all the answers, but to be a good therapist, I think you do have to listen and try to ask really good questions. Yes, which, which brings me to a part of um, another uh, area um, that I think really complements what you're talking about, where you've addressed the seven commandments of good therapy, because oh, yeah. careful therapy is essential in everything that you've shared today. Yes, that's a, that's an ebook that I have for free download on my website. Um, it's a it's it's all about how to evaluate the therapist that you're trying to choose or the one you have now. I've had horror stories of therapists going to sleep or a therapist charging uh, fees that they had not talked to the patient about or uh, ther- the. A family member being contacted by the therapist and telling them what they said in therapy. I mean, there's just some egregious mistakes being made out there. And so this is just a very simple, basic guide on what you need to expect and what you can ask for, um, what is your right, and how you can feel safe in a therapeutic there's, there's, in a therapeutic relationship. There's nothing like it. I'm a therapist because I got really good therapy. And... So they are out there, and they and good therapists can be trusted, and they and therapy can do a whole lot of good for people if they try it out. Which goes back to that um, whole concept of um, maintaining vitality, uh, and at the same time being very careful within these relationships and maintaining a sense of humor, but strong ethical boundaries in the process as well, which um, I know I found to be a very good read uh, as I was going through the the commandments, if you will. Oh, thank Um, you. (laughs) Well, they're always good reminders. And um, if, if honesty and being one's real self is a goal of the therapy, then um, I guess part of our own growth as therapists um, probably should be including that. Well, that's my take on it. I probably there's some fields of study that might not agree that you you keep a more aloof or um, you know Spartan or whatever kind of uh, presentation as a therapist, but. I would be bored stiff doing that, so <laughs> I do it the way I do it, and it seems to work. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a good fit for everybody, certainly, but um, I'm sort of known to be direct and open, and my, my one of my mottos is, it's my job to do myself out of a job, so... There you go. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. It's been a very informative hour, and I'm sure our listeners have been intrigued by the topic, and hopefully you will receive some responses by email or um, through your blog for some folks that may be experiencing this. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much, too. 
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.